0: Linguistic
1: <laughs>
0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, before we get into today's program, I would first like to thank some of our fellow saloners who made donations to help pay for the expenses associated with these podcasts. And you'll no doubt recognize some of them as having been donors in the past as well. And this week, I would like to thank Colin F., Ian B., Nexus 112, and Murray G. for their ongoing support of the salon. And by the way, Ian, I think you should consider yourself donated up for life. Uh, That was very generous. Thank you so much, all of you. Now, I want to get right into today's program because I think that it is one that you will find quite helpful as we gradually, uh, ever so slowly, push back the oppressive policies of cannabis prohibition around the world. The talk we're about to hear was just given a few days ago, uh, I think on March 5th, 2010 to be exact. And so this information is about as up-to-date as we can get in a podcast, uh, today being the 9th, by the way. It's a talk that was given at the Ashland Alternative Health Clinic in Ashland, Oregon. And the clinic is directed by Alex Rogers and is a place where patients are guided through the official process of acquiring an Oregon medical marijuana card. As you will hear in a moment, our speaker, Claudia Little, is a registered nurse who also has an advanced degree in public health. Uh, Additionally, uh, Claudia is a member of the Medical Advisory Board of Americans for Safe Access, which is the nation's largest organization of patients, medical professionals, scientists, and uh, concerned citizens who are jointly promoting safe and legal access to cannabis for therapeutic use and uh, for research. And it is uh, one of several large organizations in the U.S. that are all working toward bringing an end to cannabis prohibition. Now, what we are about to hear is so information-packed that it could easily be the introductory lecture for a semester-long course on cannabis and uh, particularly its use as a medicine. In the next 60 minutes or so, uh, even if you are very well-versed about this subject, I think that you're going to find some things that you had uh, missed in your own research and uh, should you happen to be in the unenviable position of living with your parents or a significant other who disapprove of your cannabis use, my suggestion is to uh, encourage your antagonist to listen to this podcast, and uh, then you can have an intelligent discussion with them. Because until and unless the public at large knows the truth about cannabis, we're going to continue having a difficult time uh, getting our side of the story across. Now before I play this talk, uh, I also want to provide you with a little better picture of our speaker, Claudia Little. As you will hear in a moment, Claudia is extremely knowledgeable about this subject. In my opinion, her information is uh, the best that's available anywhere today. However, I feel that I should also explain my personal relationship with Claudia and her husband Ron, who you'll hear at the end of this talk when uh, he talks about the workings of various kinds of vaporizers. You see, my wife and Claudia were roommates in nursing school. They served as nurses in the U.S. Navy together and have been close friends ever since. And uh, there was a period several years ago when my wife and I found ourselves, uh, how shall I say it, uh, without a place of our own to live. And for about eight months, uh, Ron and Claudia shared their home with us, providing us a chance to regroup and uh, get back into the fray once again. In short, uh, Claudia and Ron are among our closest friends. More like family, actually. So, uh, without any further ado, now let's uh, join Claudia Little as she shares some very important information about what may be the single most important plant that we know of.
1: Without further ado, Claudia Little, give it up.
2: Well hi. Uh I haven't done one of these classes before, so uh you're you're my guinea pigs here. Um, everything I talk about uh will be you'll be able to access with links to all kinds of studies. So if you you know if anything especially piques your interest, you'll find it listed here and you can really delve into it a lot deeper. So that um, if you want, I'll I'll send each of you a copy to these links. So anyway, um I'm 64, I'm a grandma, and I'm an outspoken medical marijuana activist. So what happens to make, uh, make somebody like me really get up and speak before city council people and, and to the media, which I used to do in San Diego before we moved up here a few years ago? Um, it's almost always some kind of personal incident that, that causes somebody to really get passionate and uh, so I'm just going to go through a little of my personal history to kind of tell you where, where I'm coming from on that. I went to uh, to college in the 60s, so, you know, a lot of people were, uh, you know, loved children then, and we, we had flowers in our hair and all that, although I didn't. I was really a straight, you know, laced kind of person, and um, I graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Nursing in 67, and then I, I went right into the Navy Nurse Corps as an officer. So... You know, I'd tried smoking cannabis in college. I'd had a joint and didn't really have any feeling from it. You know, I think a lot of us had that experience the first time we tried cannabis. And as an officer, of course, that wasn't part of my lifestyle. So, you know, just kind of passed me by. But, uh, you know, Vietnam War, I, I, I mean, I joined the nurse corps and it was like, I, I wasn't, I wasn't for the war, but they were helping me get through school. So anyway, after I got out of, um, uh, the Nurse Corps. I, I uh, worked for a while and got a master's of, of public health from Tulane University, and decided after that that I really wanted to be a nurse practitioner. So um, I, I did get a certification as a nurse practitioner from UC San Francisco, and worked then for for a while. Got married, had a child, got divorced, uh, raised my my kid till he was getting in close to high school, and then I met. Ron Little right over here, <laughs> my wonderful husband. <laughs> and, um, and that was in the mid 90s. And about that time, <clears throat> I was still working and, and, uh, I was coming home from a long drive and I got a call from my kid's high school. And he had just been arrested on campus with a joint. And so he was going to get suspended and he wasn't going to be able to go back to school unless he went to a couple of drug rehab programs. He was brand new in the school because we just moved to the area. He was a freshman, and it was the most horrible kind of introduction to his new group of friends. And, and then going to the uh, cannabis um, or the marijuana rehab program was just quite an uh, eye-opener for my husband and I. We sat through these things with our son, you know, trying to look very stoic about, you know, being you know you can't be doing this kind of thing knowing that what they were telling our son was completely erroneous and it really pissed us off <laughs> so um you know by this time you know we we had actually we we smoked cannabis now and then at home but very seldom i mean Ron and i had decided to get married before we'd even um discussed whether we smoked cannabis so that's how infrequent it was but um but that That uh, really galvanized both of us to learn more about marijuana because we knew what they were telling our kid was wrong and uh, and so we actually signed up to go to a normal conference in San Francisco and this was in the early 2000s you know around two thousand two or so at that point we were still so under the radar we didn't our friends didn't know we ever smoked at all and um, we we just kind of Crept off to San Francisco, not telling anyone where we were. And we got to this conference, and if you haven't ever gone to a national conference of one of the advocacy groups, I'd really, really recommend that you do. It totally changed us. We went there and we saw people getting up, famous people. Um, yeah, Rick Steves, you know, the travel guy, he's on the board of Normal. He got up and gave an impassioned talk about um, about how uh, cannabis should be legalized for all purposes. Drink
1: him. Of my goals is
2: to drink him oh, he now. is he so fabulous! Yeah, he is a great guy, and you know, lots of lectures on the medical uses, and a lot of lot of uh, people getting up and talking about um, all all aspects. So, uh, what really got me interested, though, is this um, talk by some Americans for Safe Access people. They just started the Americans for Safe Access chapter in San Francisco. And um, we were so impressed with what they were doing that when we came back to San Diego, we joined with a couple of other people that we'd met from the area, and we actually started an Americans for Safe Access chapter. And right away, that really propelled us into the limelight. And um, so I haven't been sorry at all. And uh, I'm really, really just so pleased to, to be able to know as much as I do about cannabis and actually now to, to tell you a little bit about it too. Um, I'm just going to, I think that, like I said, the, the pivotal thing for me was keeping my son safe. And in, in my case, it was um, it's keeping him safe from arrest. And I think that's the biggest thing that we all need to do. And and, uh, you know, the ca- cannabis prohibition is, is um, that is the, the main problem with it. Not cannabis, the, the plant, but the prohibition of cannabis. Um, <clears throat> about 4,000 years ago, uh, cannabis was mentioned in the Chinese pharmacopoeia. It said it undoes rheumatism. So this is something that's been known for millennia and uh, as we've come forward, and even in our own country in the 1600s, it was actually illegal not to grow cannabis. You had to grow it. And by 1850, there were over um, over 8,000 plant- cannabis plantations, or I guess if they'd call it hemp back then, uh, hemp plantations in the U.S. And a plantation was 2,000 acres, so it was a huge crop, and our whole economy depended on it. Um, by the time we get into the early 1900s um, the slaves have been emancipated and the Mexicans are starting to come across into southern states and they brought their cannabis with them for, for medicinal value as well as recreational value and The fact that these black and brown people uh, the the jazz musicians in New Orleans were using it and and uh, and that culture um, kind of expanded the use of cannabis in in a group of people that our country at the time was very much afraid of. And the politicians of the time that wanted to really get rid of um, uh, the, the hemp-growing people of our nation because, like William Randolph Hearst, wanted to make newspapers out of his forests and, and the DuPonts wanted to make nylon and rayon instead of having hemp fibers. All of this kind of conspired to get rid of hemp in the country. And so around, in the, in the 30s, the first Bureau of, um, Federal, Federal Narcotics Bureau was, um, was, was formed. And actually now it's morphed into the DEA. But, uh, they got together with some of these tycoons, uh, that politicians did, and in the back doors they decided they were going to tax marijuana. And, uh, and they were calling it marijuana. So, the, the the pharmaceutical companies that had cannabis in most of their patent medicines at the time, and um, and who else? The, the farmers that were growing hemp, they they called it hemp. So when they were talking about this demon weed called marijuana, you know, people didn't really recognize what they were doing. About two days before the the Senate w- or the Congress was going to vote on the tax act. Uh, the AMA came and realized, hey, this is, this is, this is cannabis. We can't let this happen. And they came to testify in, in Congress and their testimony was actually misrepresented to Congress. And two days later, it was just too late to stop it. The Tax Act was, was passed. And that essentially made cannabis illegal. That was really the only way the federal government could do it because usually states had to regulate their drugs. So uh, the tax act made anyone that sold marijuana, they had to pay a huge tax, and of course nobody could pay it, and so that made them go to jail. It worked. Um, and the hysteria that surrounded cannabis back then was, was really um, unforgivable, and the kinds of prejudice-type statements that were made um, really couldn't be made today. But, uh, you know, here's, here's what Harry Anslinger said, the first director of our Narcotics Bureau, he said, there are 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the US, and most are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. Their satanic music, jazz, and swing result from marijuana use. This marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relations with Negroes, entertainers, and all others. So, <laughs> so that's the kind of stuff that was fed to the public, and it just kept on going. and. Cannabis use really kind of died out a bit, but around the '60s, when I was in college, it had a resurgence and and most of us that are in this age group know that there 's nothing wrong with cannabis, you know most of us didn't really get very high from it, even you know so who cares? but um, anyway, science has been trying to inform politicians for a long time that. They're off base. Nixon even commissioned the Schaefer Report in 72, and the Schaefer Report reported back to him, saying, The criminal law is too harsh a tool to apply to personal possession, even in an effort to discourage use. It implies an overwhelming indictment of the behavior which we believe is not appropriate. The actual and potential harm of use of the drug is not great enough to justify intrusion by the criminal law into private behavior, a step which our society takes only with the greatest reluctance. So Nixon got the report, totally ignored it, went forward with the drug war. Um, 88, uh, in, in 1988, the DEA's own administrative law judge, and you probably a lot of you heard this, He actually told the DEA head, marijuana in its natural forms is one of the safest therapeutically active substances known to man. And this was based on a lot of science that was was um, accumulated at the time and summarized by the law judge to his boss. That was ignored. As late as 1999, the Institutes of Medicine uh, on a federal level gave the report saying, and they affirmed that marijuana and its constituents possessed numerous therapeutic properties, including the ability to control pain, nausea, and anxiety, and to stimulate appetite. So you can see that all the scientific information that we'll be talking about today falls on deaf ears. So when any of you hear marijuana has no medicinal benefit, after today i hope that you'll be able to really speak out very vociferously about it and maybe send them some of the links that i'm going to share with you polls have shown that 80% of the population of our country believe that medical cannabis should be legalized and that's everybody all the states we have now medical cannabis laws in 14 states and um there if you want to know what they are uh, i can i can let you know but um but our advocacy groups and our lobbying groups in um, in Washington are constantly going and talking with uh, state leaders and, and federal leaders, and, and that's why we have these laws. It's not because the states just decided, hey, this is a good idea. So um, that's one reason I'm going to make a big pitch for joining um, all the different advocacy groups and checking their websites routinely because every week there's a new action alert. And I, I was on a conference call just this week with um, Americans for Safe, Safe Access, calling from the Capitol building in between appointments with, with um, senators, and um, and they have said, you know, we go and talk to them. But we need the constituents out there to be making a loud noise to their congresspeople. They, they, they need to know that you are behind us. So um, And on
1: that note, Claudia, uh, we're starting progressive reform of Oregon, pro-Oregon. It's starting right now. And it's my, uh, nonprofit lobby group, uh, for, uh, drug reform policy. And so it's a, it's an Oregon thing, a real concerted effort to be able to lobby Salem in a, in a way that they have not been lobbied before yet on these particular
2: issues. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. that's that's really so really what you need. Well, something that's just um, you know this has been around for a while, but maybe a lot of you don't know that a lot of um, organizations, medical and scientific organizations over the last 10 or so year, years, have been calling for the legalization of cannabis for medical purposes. And here in the U.S., just to name a couple, I mean, this is pages and pages of both our in our country and in other countries. But here in the U.S., the American Academy of Family Physicians has endorsed uh, immediate legal access, access. The American Nurses Association, the American Public Health Association, and most um impressively and ex- most exciting for me is that the American Medical Association the AMA in November just uh called for rescheduling of cannabis and uh and endorsing its um, ther- therapeutic value and this was just in November and I have to I I'm actually on the medical advisory board for Americans for Safe Access and one of my fellow members was is a member of the AMA and he's the one that actually got this resolution passed. So you can see that as a, these advocacy groups have a tremendous influence on, on what's happening in our country, and um, I'm really, really happy about that. Um, this is another thing that you'll find on, on your list of links, and this is a beautiful compendium of information on recent research. This is all research that's been done in the last um, 10 years, on medical cannabis and you can see just from the diagram here lots of different ways that it's used. This is the kind of thing that you can print out and take to your doctor, especially the ones that don't think there's you know think this is all mumbo jumbo. Um, the uh the organizations here, um I mean well the 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 uh literature that's listed in here is all annotated and they can they can look up the references and if it's if they look at it online They're all links that you don't have to really go anywhere. They're just right there for you. You're being spoon-fed, so it's beautiful. Um, The reason that a lot of physicians don't believe in cannabis as being a therapeutic and don't want to get involved is, is, well, for one thing, they're afraid. And uh, I was going to tell you about this later, but I'll tell you right now. Um, On your links, you'll see that um, there's reference to Conant versus Walters, which was a, a court a court case that came about in um, in two thousand and three, and it went as far as the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals so in that decision it was um, it was uh, the doctor's right to uh, recommend cannabis was upheld. the Supreme Court refused to take the case so it's definitely something that your physicians can um, can do, and if they think they are going to get in trouble or whatever, you can just take a copy of that to them, and it should allay any kind of fears that they have. The science of of cannabis is very young. We we didn't even know what the active ingredient of THC was until 1964, and it was. Um, Researched and and discovered by a lab in Israel from the University of Jerusalem, and that lab is still very active today, and they do an awful lot of research on (coughs) cannabis. Um, So in '64, we knew that there was what the active ingredient was, but and we knew that it caused some kind of a psychoactive response in our body. So there must be some kind of receptor in our body that responded to this 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 uh, external cannabinoid. So the search was on to find those, those receptors. And it wasn't until 1988 that the CB1 receptor was found, which is in the brain. And it's all throughout the brain and the central nervous system. And this, this little diagram shows a lot of different areas in the brain and, and what they, they, um, they control. So, a lot of the, the psychoactive and even some of the therapeutic aspects of cannabis are controlled from the brainstem. Um, and that CB1 receptor was found, and that is mostly in the central nervous system. But if doesn't we didn't know until a couple of years later about the CB2 receptor, which is in the immune system. Um, so the hunt was on for if we've got this receptor that this external cannabinoid works with, and causes a psychoactive response and other responses too, then there must be something our body produces that link up to this, or why would we have a receptor? But it wasn't until 1992, that's not very long ago, that we found um, that, that um, the, our own internal cannabis-like substance was found, and it's, they called it anandamide, and that's Sanskrit for bliss, which is really appropriate. Um, It was a couple of years after that, at UC Irvine, that a second endocannabinoid was discovered, and that has a really long name that people have shortened to 2-AG. So we know that we we have um, two internal cannabinoids, and it's suspected that there are at least a couple more, but they have not been uh, actually identified yet. We know they're there, but um, it'll probably be a few more years until we find those, but people are definitely actively looking for these these endocannabinoids. Um, there are lots of different cannabinoids in the plant. The plant has about 60 cannabinoids. So um, when we very simply how it works in our body is that when we have pain or nausea or all the other things that cause dysphoria in our in our our, uh, our bodies our internal cannabinoids are activated, and they're really trying to overcome that. And eventually, you know, most of us do get some relief from our pain or our nausea or whatever. That is our endocannabinoid system. So when you take external cannabinoids and you smoke or eat or whatever, that augments the system and the effect is amplified. So um, in most cases, people uh, find that um, it... If they, you know, let's let's just take mood for instance, you know, if you smoke cannabis, your mood is elevated. That just amplifies the whole endocannabinoid uh, kind of system that we have. in In our country, we have a really reductionist attitude toward medicines. Um, most of our, actually, not maybe not most, but a good percentage of our medicines are plant based. Aspirin, for one digoxin, atropine, um, morphine, vincristine, and taxol for chemotherapeutics. You could go on and on. And how we work things in, the, in, in America is that we identify the active ingredient, the pharmaceutical companies then synthesize it in a lab. They put it into some kind of pill form or injectable. They uh, concentrate it so it's really strong. And then they patent it, and then you get it as a prescribed pharmaceutical. Um, this is a really different approach than Eastern medicine. And uh, a couple of years ago, Ron and I went to uh, Vancouver, and uh, Chinatown was really interesting. And they have a couple of pharmacies there, and we were just blown away walking around Vancouver uh, in this pharmacy, looking at the the you know jars, big jars of Roots and leaves and uh, all kinds of mushrooms and different kinds of things. that And people were in there buying those things and from a doctor's prescription. So those are whole plant uh, medicinals. There are far less side effects with whole plant medicinals. There's a synergy that happens when you use whole plant. And most people that are using cannabis, a lot of times you'll hear the argument, well, we need it to be FDA approved, and you know, uh, why are they having to smoke it when they can use Marinol? In fact, there is actually a, a, a initiative circulating signatures right now to outlaw our cannabis law here. I don't know if any of you are aware of that, but um, they want to they want to say, okay, well, we recognize the medicinal aspects of, of Marinol. Uh, it's actually a class 3 drug, uh, which is not uh, highly rec- uh, regulated like a class 1 is, which is considered the most dangerous. They've allowed Marinol to be a class 3 and prescribed by a doctor. Most patients that have tried it don't really like it because it's unopposed THC. And unopposed THC causes anxiety and paranoia and agitation and it's just not very comfortable.
3: Well, it doesn't yeah. have cannabinoids either, does it? That is a
2: cannabinoid, yes. Does
3: it?
2: THC it's is a cannabinoid, yes. and It's a psychoactive. Okay. It's the psychoactive cannabinoid. The plant has a lot of different cannabinoids oh, so in it in addition have... to okay. THC.
3: Yeah, good question. I, can I share a quick mm-hmm. story? Sure. I went to um, Mexico, and the reason I initially started doing it, it was I breaking into hives and just have chemical sensitivity. Yeah. And I'd have to go get... Um, injections of steroids every month and a friend of mine suggested i try marijuana and as i was getting the hives i did and they went away and we kept watching the cycle every time i'd get it i'd try it and and so my i worked with my doctor for a year and we noticed there was literally no explanation for it other than that so i was going to mexico and she gave me a prescription of marinol oh well i went i took it down there and i got hives while I was taking Marinol, <laughs> and um, fortunately we were staying with a Hispanic family who had a teenager, and I had my teenage daughter goes, "Mom, I can get you some, right?" So she, <laughs> the boyfriend goes out and gets me some, right? And um, I went, I was broken into hives, and I did the, <clears> throat> throat> and they were gone overnight. Wow. And it just, I mean, they're instant. to it, yeah. uh, You know, my I get them so bad on my face that
2: I can't yeah. see out
3: of my eyes. It's just horrible. And but the Marinol clearly does not work the same.
2: You're right, and that is so interesting that you said that because, uh, the other cannabinoid that is a very active one we know a lot about is cannabidiol. And it works on the immune system, and what you had was a histamine reaction, which is kind of an autoimmune kind of reaction. It's a, it's cannabidiol. Yeah, they call it CBD. And, uh, and obviously, that's the ingredient that you right. needed. I have
3: autoimmune disease. And yeah. I've it, I, like I had all my blood work was out of whack
2: mm-hmm.
3: on so many different things. And my blood reports come back completely clean now.
2: Yeah. So well, the CBD lot. is not psychoactive. And yet it works with the plant to give all those wonderful other kinds of uh, benefits, especially for all the autoimmune diseases. And it's being used in, very effectively for rheumatoid arthritis and Crohn's disease because it downregulates inflammation in a beautiful way. Yeah. So um, that's that's a really great first-hand account of Marinol right there. Yeah. Besides, when you take Marinol, it's it's actually prescribed for nausea and vomiting. And if you're taking it orally, you're going to throw it up. If you're having a bad case of that, it takes a long time to um, you know to, to to get some response from too because it's ingested and absorbed through the GI tract. So it's not going to work very quickly. Where it's whereas,
3: just psychoactive.
2: Exactly. Okay. Yeah, it, it does have other THC does have other medicinal properties though. It's not it's not just that it's psychoactive. It definitely has medicinal properties as well. But unopposed THC without the other cannabinoids in it can can cause some of those those symptoms I talked about. Um, <clears throat> now uh, the the research um, has really you know, blossomed in the last, especially the last 10 years. And if in 1996, when Prop 215 was um, um, passed in California, uh, if you Googled cannabis research, you would have gotten about 250 uh, journal articles that were published. And in 2008, if you did the same thing, you would have gotten over 2,100 journal articles. And these, this isn't just newspaper, this isn't newspaper articles and sensational articles. This isn't the High Times articles. This is, uh, scientific journals that are, uh, with respected, um, credentials from universities around the world and the U.S. Um, it works for all kinds of symptoms. And, uh, I'll just go through a list here. Glaucoma, appetite, stimulation, uh, nausea control, pain, all sorts of pain, especially neuropathic pain and inflammation, such as arthritis, multiple sclerosis for spasticity, pain management, seizures for epilepsy and movement disorders, Alzheimer's disease, um, GI symptoms and problems, Tourette's, insomnia, lots of other things. They don't have depression on here. I think that's a really big one, too, that is always left off of lists. But I think all of us know how much help it gives us with with uh, elevation and mood. Um, and the reason that it works so well in so many places is because we have these CB1 and CB2 receptors all over our bodies. It's in cartilage tissue. It, it, it's in the cardiovascular system. It's everywhere. So when people say, well, it can't work for all that stuff, okay, maybe appetite and pain, but that's about it. Well, I'm sorry. That's not the whole story. Um, I don't ha- I I really had to st- stop myself from putting all these different different studies on on the links list, but one of the really important ones that I think w- that didn't make the list was um where they they've um bred mice that didn't have the endocannabinoid receptors and those baby mice that are born without a cannabinoid system die you have to have cannabinoids to, to thrive. You don't eat and, and you you don't gain weight and, and the baby mice just completely die off. So um, that's why, again, that this works with, with so many different systems and, and, and in so many different disease states. One of the most exciting things um, is that not only is it good for symptom relief, but it's now... There's lots of new research in the last 10 years on its anti-cancer effects and its ability to modify disease. It's neuroprotective. We know that it can actually help nerves regenerate. So in patients with Alzheimer's, a girlfriend of mine used to, to be so afraid of using cannabis because her mom had Alzheimer's and it was like, oh, I don't want to do that because I might fry my brain and get even worse. Just the opposite, cannabis is a neuroprotectant and they've been able to show that it grows baby uh baby mice nerve cells in their brains um, let's see i'll get to that in a sec okay so we're talking about um, uh the anti-cancer effects in 2005 uh one of the most definitive uh studies ever done on cannabis uh came out of UC Los Angeles Done by Donald Tashkin, who was the darling of the National Institutes on Drug Abuse. That is uh, the organization that funds almost all of the cannabis research in the country. And um, he, he gave his uh, findings at a medical meeting. And what, what, his, uh, what the study said is that um, marijuana, marijuana smoking was not positively associated with cancers of the lung or upper or aerodigestive tract. Even in individuals who were heavy, heavy daily smokers, he, he quoted 22,000 joints in their lives. You know, the, he looked at people who really used a lot of it. What they found was that these patients actually had less lung cancer than non-smokers of any substance. Yeah, non-, so at the meeting, he had to admit at the meeting that it could cause, create a, a, a protective effect. Well, over the years, that was 2005, what I loved was in June, Tashkin actually came out with this. He said, um, he said that he began his work 30 years ago. He, when he did, he opposed legalization because he thought it would lead to increased use, and that would lead to increased health effects. However, now he admits his decades' worth of scientific research re- revealed the opposite conclusion. And what we found <laughs> instead... Was no association and even a suggestion of some protective effects. Now these are patients that were smoking it, not vaporizing it. So um, you know, when you hear, well, smoking is so bad for you, you know, quote that study.
1: Yeah. I'm so fascinated with that study. Did they use then the, did they go on to people's testimony or did they use Nida's farm in Mississippi for the?
2: Yeah. No. They no. they uh, they didn't they didn't know where the patients got their marijuana. Okay. This was not. This was uh, looking at 2,000 patients. Oh, actually, about 2,500 patients, based on um, their histories, and, and so.
1: In California. So one could assume that they did use NIDA's test sample that the the, the uh, results might not have been the same because of the lower grade of cannabis? I was, I
2: was, I was, yeah, You know, uh, that's, that's interesting. Um, I don't think that that would have made a difference because uh, actually the uh, uh, there's a Department of Medical cannabis, cannabis Research. A lot of people don't know that for the last 10 years there's been this Department of Medical Cannabis Research on a UC campus in San Diego. It was, it was funded after Prop 215 was passed. And by the state, not the feds, the state wanted to know, hey, since we passed this this, um, this medical cannabis law, are people going to be getting sick? And they've actually come out with um, about 15 published studies, all very positive. And uh, the director of that program recently was asked about uh, using the government-supplied NIDA rolled cigarettes that that they... uh right that they that they give out it's only grown in one place in in mississippi he that's what they used in their studies and he just he thought well he liked using it because he felt like it was standardized and he knew even though it was maybe not the highest grade cannabis he knew it was one standard grade of cannabis for his studies and actually, the studies came out with pretty good results. So that's amazing. Mm-hmm.
1: You think if you use high grade, medical grade cannabis versus that like three mm-hmm. percent stuff where they mix like the stems and seeds? Right. Well, I know Eldie Musica. She's one of the recipients.
2: Right. That,
1: uh, we've seen the tins that it comes in from the government. There's seven government uh, federal medical uh, marijuana patients. So, so I. So I I, I know that eventually the studies will even be more, or one could assume that the studies might even be more positive, assuming that they have a higher uh, uh, test rate.
2: Right, exactly, yeah. Um, There have been a couple of really huge studies. Kaiser did one, and it was published in 1997, of 65,000 patients. And they asked about cannabis use and looked at mortality rates, and they found no association with the increase in mortality. So that was one of the first studies. And it was kind of revolutionary that a, a, a HMO like Kaiser would do a study like that and have so many patients and, and have such a good result. Uh, but it do, did kind of go along with another study that came out in Great Britain on a large population of patients, too. So. Nothing's looking too much like it's causing death and dying here um, <laughs> now what it just gets even better I mean, I just love this because this summer there were a couple of um really great studies, one that was published um, in August, and this one was uh, this this stuff was um, it came out in cancer epidemiology and it was a study that took place in Boston University and also University of Minnesota and Louisiana State University, and they were looking at head and neck squamous cell cancers. And they um, this actually confirmed some research that I'd seen quite a few years earlier on rats, but this was looking at patients, real patients, at the incidence of head and neck cancers in heavy smokers of cannabis. And they found that cannabis smokers had a 35 percent reduction in head and neck squamous cell cancers than non-smokers of, of of any other substance. So, that doesn't that kind of go along with what Tashkin showed us that that um, yeah maybe there's a protective effect here. And and especially uh, as a nurse, I know that that head and neck kinds of cancers are very common in patients that smoke tap. Tobacco and drink alcohol; those two things go together, and in the incidence of, of head and neck cancers are extremely high. So, if cannabis smoking can give that kind of protective effect, that's a, a very opposite uh, effect from from um, tobacco. Um, there's a a study here that was done by the um, this just came out last month, uh, Medical um, Pacific Medical Center, part of the UC system. They looked at um, at glioma cells. Glioma is one of the most dangerous kinds of blood uh, uh, brain cancers that you can get. It's very deadly. A few years back, um, researchers in Spain actually injected patients that were on their last legs. They were just about gone, and because you can't do this on, on on regular patients, but sometimes at the very end of life, patients will kind of agree to be guinea pigs. And they injected glioma cells, uh, tumors, with with THC. And they found uh, that these tumors shrank and patients had a longer lifespan. And they only did this on a few patients, but that made uh, some medical journals. But this particular um, research was done in the lab. It's preclinical and so not on patients, but they looked at being able to kill cancer cells with um uh, a combination of THC and cannabidiol, and they found a greater effect in using um, the combination of the two, that synergy that I was talking about. Um, there was a New Zealand study. This was uh, just this past summer on lung function, and uh, they looked at patients that were uh, lung capacity, that forced vital capacity, total lung capacity, functional residual capacity, and they compared it to, to um, uh, people that didn't smoke any kind of uh, tobacco. And they found that um, cannabis smokers had the same kind of lung function outcomes than, um, than non-smokers. So again, uh, no uh, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or, or lung compromising with smoked cannabis, too. Um the a really uh, something that made the the actual mainstream news, and I call having to post mainstream news these days. It's not the only news I care to look at. But um, anyway, uh, I did hear it as I was driving along. I heard it on NPR too. Um, that uh, uh, the research arm of the UC um, system that's down in San Diego, the Center for Medical Cannabis, Cannabis Research. Um, just came out with a couple of their final studies because now they're losing their funding. It's been over 10 years that they've been going and they have a couple of studies to wrap up. But they, they, they've used the smoked cannabis and they uh, reported on these two final studies that looked at neuropathic pain and the spasticity of multiple sclerosis. Oh, I know what I was going to say. The, the, they're considered gold-standard type studies because they're randomized, placebo-controlled type studies. And they, they followed patients for quite a while. And it, the, because these are the kind of studies that the FDA always says they have to have, that really kind of made the news. I mean, these, this isn't new information to someone that's been following the research. It's been out there, and it's been written up in, in magazines and published and everything. But the fact that a state institution... That that followed all the rules came out with these positive results was was really newsworthy, and um, on the conference call that I was on recently um, last week with the ACE people, they said okay you know these people that in Colorado that have been following all the rules with their dispensaries and and uh, doing everything right have been raided by the federal government just last week. They were just raids going on, even despite our attorney general saying that he's going to honor states' states um, uh, medical marijuana laws. Well, uh, we have a new DEA director. Her name is Michelle Leonhardt, and she's a real drug warrior. She, we're not happy that she's our new DEA director. And these raids happened right after her appointment. So um, the fact that this has just come out... You know it's it's the government can't argue with this okay NIDA didn't refund the research because NIDA won't refund anything that is uh, going to come out with a positive income outcome the um, the state had to, to fund that this kind of study but the fact that they're still rating people and uh, that are using medical cannabis and in in the, in the face of this kind of research they just said write a letter to your paper and you know ask them why they didn't report on this study you know they're so eager to put marijuana studies in that that show negative results let's 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 ask our paper so i got i I wrote a letter i don't know if it'll get published but we'll see it might you never know they've 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 actually published a couple of my letters so they are they are and that's the pressure that we put on is going to make a lot of difference so so this thing that that you're doing alex is very timely Um, On that note, uh, just the 28th of January, the NIDA spokesperson said this. As the National Institute on Drug Abuse, our focus is primarily on the negative consequence of marijuana use. We generally do not fund research focused on the potential beneficial medical effects of marijuana. That was just a few weeks ago. So that's why we don't see anything from our government, because they have a policy not to even go there. That's why Donald Tashkin at UCLA was um, – w- it was really amazing that his research uh, was was a- able to actually get as much publicity as it did, but it was mostly within our little group of uh, people that want to liberate cannabis. Let me say,
4: say mm-hmm. NIDA did fund his research with the expectation – that he was going to make a positive connection between lung exactly. cancer and cannabis smoking. They, 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 previously, all the research had been too small projects. This was going to be the definitive one to prove that connection, mm-hmm. and he came up with the contrary result, much to their chagrin.
2: <laughs> exactly. Uh, okay. So let's. You know, I, I, I think that the uh, the the Psychological effects of cannabis have been so overlooked, and none of the state programs list depression as something that can, cannabis can be used for. And you'll hardly ever, you know, people stay away from that. So what's wrong with euphoria? That's what I want to know. You know, I think uh, uh, it's very obvious to me that when I when I smoke or, or vaporize with cannabis, I feel better already. I just have a lifting of mood. And with the amount of, of uh, psychoactive drugs for depression that are being pharmaceuticalized in this country, cannabis would be a really great alternative. And there are so many side effects. One of the big ones for men is impotence. And with cannabis, it's just the opposite. You know, it really enhances one's sexual life. So um, I, I just think that um, that more and more research needs to come out about um, about cannabis being good for uh, for for uh, mood. This was a good one. This is also going to be on your links. It's cannabis in the brain, and it goes into a lot of the science about neuroprotection. But the very first uh, paragraphs, this uh, cited research at the University of Saskatchewan, that looked at um, newborn mice, and it's, it says um, that, the, that the university found that the administration of cannabinoids in rats stimulated the proliferation of nerve cells in the hippocampus region of the brain and significantly reduced measures of anxiety and depression-like behavior. So, okay, if it's good for rats, I guess it's good for us too. So when you see things like that, when I see any kind of thing that talks about depression being uh, uh, ameliorated in humans, I, I go right for it. So this came out in November... It was done at the University of Oslo, and it looks at the, um, the use of cannabis in um, neurocognitive functioning for bipolar disorder, and it showed that patients that have bipolar disorder have a greatly increased um, relief, relief of symptoms. In the study also, they looked at schizophrenia, and they didn't find the same relationship there. So um, have, have many of you heard about the controversy about cannabis and schizophrenia? Well, if you haven't, you may, because that seems to be the last bastion of where the attacks are coming from. Um, you know, with all this research about the medicinal benefits, and and really almost any scientific paper that you write isn't going to say anything about the negative effects of, of cannabis. Um, it's 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 kind of like the last straw that the government's going to throw at us about um, you know being cautious about using. Using or keeping it illegal, actually, in in, um, in Great Britain, they they down regulated. The, they they had changed the scheduling of cannabis to be more liberal, and because of some research on schizophrenia a few years ago, they made it actually more restrictive. A lot of the people that were that really knew the cannabis literature resigned. That the whole the whole board that had had been um, put together to to reschedule cannabis to a more liberal. Um, uh, component actually all resigned because it was so politicized. Did you have a question? I just wanted to know if there was any studies done with autism. Not that I've seen. Not that I've seen. There's a lot of anecdotal stuff. Lots of anecdotal studies, right?
1: Autism. It's just a Good Morning America or Today Show or something. Some gal had her ten-year-old kid and there's brownies, she had Didn't yeah. Today Show, and, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. And, you know, she was saying this is the best thing for his autism. You know, he can actually interact a little bit now. He's not as uh, in conflict with himself. and... Uh,
2: yeah, that that's
1: going to be a
2: big, big thing. That I think that really will be. Um, I was had the privilege of knowing a, a, a researcher named Claudia Jensen, an MD at USC, and she used cannabis in her practice for children that had ADD, and it was very controversial. She was actually called back to, to testify <laughs> in Washington uh, to the um, health department, or what it the I don't know the Senate committee on health or whatever. Um, but uh, that there is a huge benefit for people with ADD because um, you know they're so scattered and you know things are. Its stimulus is coming in and taking, having the cannabis, it kind of down down regulates all of that input and makes it easier to concentrate. Um, this is a, a book called Jeffrey's Journey, and uh, it is about a one woman's story about her child who had incredible rages, and I, that can happen in autism, too. It doesn't really say the diagnosis, but um, I love that Andrew Weil actually gave his endorsement of this, saying, Jeffrey's journey is a compelling firsthand account of the successful use of medical marijuana to treat a serious behavioral disorder in a child. This, um, this engaging case report offers an honest look at conventional psychiatric medications and sheds new light on the um, untapped possibilities of cannabis as an alternative. Who is the
4: author?
2: Um, Debbie Jeffries and Lorraine Jeffries. So here's this study that looked at bipolar thought it had some benefit and looked at schizophrenia didn't think it had any benefit. But then in June this study came out oral THC improves symptoms of schizophrenia. So it's a you know it depends when you when I get a negative report on anything I start looking for the um, the rebuttal to that report, which is usually on Normals' website. Um, Paul Armentano. Hmm? Or who funded it. Exactly, who funded it. That's the very first question. Who funded it? Almost always had some kind of government money. Um, but this, this particular thing did show a, a big improvement in the patients using cannabis. But um, I, I mentioned the... Um, the recent study. This came out um, March 1st. This is the negative thing that you'll see. This got a lot of press. It was all over the internet. It was, um, you know, reported in newspapers. Pot smoking increases risks of psychosis. So right off the bat, next day I go to Normal's website, and here is the um, rebuttal to it, <laughs> which is beautiful. Um, um, and, and, it, and it quotes this article. So, this came out March 1st. This was actually even ahead of that. So, uh, this, this was in February, the middle of last month, that said, and, and so it was before this was even on the newsstand. And this was, um, was uh, published in the Journal of Addiction. Supposed marijuana and schizophrenia link overstated. So, it, it gives now a lot of references within this article as to. Uh, where you can look to just see where they've overstated this this um, this association. That's all it is. It's a, a possible association. Especially they they talk about kids that start heavy cannabis use as teenagers. Haven't been able to find it in any anyone else. And and if there is a statistical association, they don't know if the the disease caused the use of cannabis, or the cannabis caused the... They, they like to think the cannabis caused it, but it's um, it's such a tiny, tiny fraction of p- patients that might even fall into this category that it, it hasn't reached any kind of uh, significance. Um, uh, because, for instance, you see the incidence and prevalence of schizophrenic and psychosis were either stable or declining during the period that they're looking at it. So, and there hasn't been any increase in schizophrenia in the general population. In fact, there's been a, a slight decline. Yeah.
3: NPR just had a study out, or an article out on um, the teenage brain, though, mm-hmm. and how it, because it's in the process of formation, right. That there's not a connection between the frontal lobe, and they actually reference that that's that medical marijuana alters the connectors up there mm-hmm. for, for the teenage brain,
2: just yeah. because it's not formed
3: in a way that it doesn't to adult brains.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's really very uh, very good to be um, cautious about any kind of drug therapy in children. In fact, that goes for Ritalin and all the other kinds of things that people are giving kids. Um, but uh, in some cases, like with, with this child, and in and, and cases of ADD, um, it, it, it may it, you know you have to look at the risk ratio uh, benefit ratio and and uh, taking a risk where there may be a tiny risk in, in a teenage brain and forming you know whatever is going to happen in the future but but um, but it may be a overwhelming reason to use cannabis if they have a, a, a situation that could benefit from it Um the, the safety of cannabis is also something that, uh, that, that people have looked at, and our government always tries to tell us that it's so unsafe. But this, this particular graph, which I know it's probably a little hard to see from where you're sitting, but it was done by the National Institutes on Drug Abuse as well as UC San Francisco. So these are very reputable sources. And here's cannabis over here. They're looking at nicotine, heroin, cocaine, alcohol, caffeine, and cannabis. Cannabis is low on everything, uh, except for the intoxication. It doesn't, it's not the same as nicotine or, or, or caffeine. It doesn't cause any kind of intoxication. But if you're looking at co- intoxication levels compared to heroin, cocaine, and alcohol, it's, it's lower than any of those. So it's, it's safer in in all these different parameters of possible, uh, what would what, what be looked at as addictive potentials of, of any drug. Um, as Christine mentioned earlier, there is no LD50 or lethal dose um, known for cannabis.
3: Mm-hmm. I'm a lactation consultant, and in my training,
2: mm-hmm. I asked, there okay, were well, all kinds of studies done on alcohol and breast milk and how it affects the kids, and I wanted to know if there was any studies for THC and she said there was one. She didn't want to talk about it. And so after class, I said, well, what, you know, what's up with the study? And she goes, well, the babies whose mothers smoked were smarter. They were smarter, and, um, mm-hmm. but she said they ate better. I don't know what that was about, but <laughs> I don't know if it was like, healthier, or maybe it was just like growing. The, the well, it maybe with the sucking uh nursing because um that does that does uh, seem to be enhanced with with kids that are that are exposed to THC. You know, fatter. Yeah. So I
3: thought that was interesting, they were smarter.
2: Yeah. Well Melanie Dreyer out of um I think it's the University of Indiana or Ohio, one of those Midwestern universities, she did her PhD thesis on um um Cannabis smoking in, in pregnant women. And it was, she was, did it in, in Jamaica. And it's, uh, she's really a great expert and if you, if you, uh, Googled her name on, um, you'd be able to listen to some of her lectures. And this is all about, um, use of cannabis in pregnant women and, and, and babies later on. Melanie Dreyer. And, uh, I've heard her speak a few times and she is just, uh, it's just so great. Um and really all the all the kids, they've been following the kids in, in her studies for many years and they're just they they do very, very well. They they have no impairment at all and they do better in most everything.
4: You know, from my understanding of the I read some stuff online about it and the children that came up actually excelled and were healthier than the kids that were taking nothing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they you know, that was yeah. pretty amazing. I was yeah.
2: amazed. Yeah, it's, it's really great. It's, it's sad because so many doctors won't, um, you know, they'll even take babies away from people that have been smoking cannabis if, because of course, you know, you can do a urine test and see. And, uh, it's just really sad that, that it's come to that because, um, especially for, um, gravitarum, which is, um, which is excessive vomiting during pregnancy. Uh, it's sometimes the only thing that will work and, uh, keep babies, you know, in utero and not, not have a lot of uh, premature, bet, low birth weight babies. can we,
1: about 10 more minutes?
2: Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, sorry, we're getting. Okay. okay, so um, I'll skip through some of these things. Uh, safety, you know, um, it's just, uh, you know, you don't already know, feel like it's pretty safe, well, Hey <laughs> uh, but this one i I really loved this study from UCSD. This was in uh, August looked at binge drinking in uh, college kids. This is done through UCSD in San Diego State, and they uh, they they had a definition for binge drinking, quite a few drinks in one period of time, and they looked at the brain matter of of kids that had the binge drinking. In uh, eight different brain cell regions, they had white cell damage, and but the kids that smoked cannabis and drank at the same time had protection in seven of the eight areas of the brain. So that is a, you know, have have, have a joint with your wine, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
4: Um, I just read recently. Um, about a fellow in Canada by the name of Rick Simpson.
2: Yes, uh-huh. And
1: do you have any information on him?
2: Uh, I don't have any information here, but I think Alex can talk about Rick. You know.
1: just, I'll tell you later if you want to okay. but uh, uh, Rick Simpson, he's just making a highly uh, concentrated uh, ham boil and, uh, in Canada, and he's giving, he gave it out to thousands of people. And, and they were all anecdotal uh, trials and a lot of people were cured from their cancer, their pain, wow. this and that, high-concentrated doses. Mm-hmm. Actually, I made some. I, I started making. make... I, I got a contingency together about a year ago. We started yeah. making some and started giving it out to to, to people with cancer. Pretty hardcore stuff. One gal with cancer. We, 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 anecdotally, it looks like we sustained her life for about five months, and the quality cannot even be—you uh, uh, can't even tell about her. She she was happy. You know, she wasn't just dying anymore. She she could go outside, and her tumor even shrank. And I was in touch with her. Doctor, primary care provider, doctor, this whole time, and a doctor was calling me up, being like, "What, what's going on there?" So, <laughs> so there's, there's, yeah, I'd like to talk to you more about that. Yeah, well, yeah, we're and we want to do more trials. And I, this other new thing's come out recently, the, the new uh, the CO2 extracts. I don't think I've told almost anybody about that here. But, wow, uh, that's the latest, uh, uh, greatest thing. So it's a, it's just a more pure form of, of like Rick Simpson basically.
2: Mm-hmm. So. Um. I'm just about ready to wrap up here. I just wanted to show you a few things. This is a I have a whole library on cannabis medicine, but this is a fabulous book. I actually this, Ethan Russo was the doctor I heard at the normal conference, and uh, the other uh, MD that wrote that was a co-author on this is, is uh, from the Netherlands. But it is if you want to get scientific on how it works, this goes to the pharmacology of it, and it, it's really a beautiful reference for people that really need to be technical. As well as this book, it's the same kind of thing. Um, really technical stuff for chemists and scientists and MDs That want to know the science behind it This is a read that I just couldn't put it down Understanding marijuana And Mitch Earlywine used to teach at USC He's, he's an exceptional speaker if you ever get a chance to listen to him But this book is just so easy to read And it's fascinating And all the studies are, are annotated to And it goes through different ways of using it What's his last name? Russo, R U S S O. Mitch Russo. Oh, I'm sorry, Mitch Earlywine. Earlywine. Earlywine, and the other doctor is Ethan Russo. Are those on your linked on your website?
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, these books I didn't put on there. Okay. I didn't, but you could write them down before you leave. Um, I, I I started and after that normal conference. I started putting together a whole bunch of this. This is just a tiny sampling of of um, of studies that uh, were done earlier than the last few years. And uh, so all I've really concentrated on were a few little sensational things. But the, if you start really delving into it, you will be amazed at this This absolutely... I think of this medicine as a tonic and um, something that all, especially aging people, should go for. It's really... The way that it works is so similar to very expensive drugs that... Um, you know, especially for arthritis and inflammation, that sort of thing. Um, I'm going to just show you really quickly... If you wanna see um Yeah. The practical aspects of administration. <laughs> Probably a lot of you already know these kinds of things, but we have we have um four different delivery devices. Of course you've got the pipe and
4: uh, rolling papers, but we never use
1: them.
2: I'll <laughs> <laughs> uh,
4: take Mendo Mulcher yeah. is really the best. Uh, <laughs>
2: It's Mindo? called a Mindo Muncher. Mulcher. Mulcher. And you, <laughs> Multure, you do this and then the, the, at the very, you know, after you've used it quite a long time, your, uh, your little, um, keef gets down here and you can use that separately. But you, in the meantime, you, um, you take the top part off and, and your ground bud is in there for your pipe.
4: Oh. So what I'm showing you here is vaporizer choices, and there's lots of vaporizer choices out there, and most of them don't work very well, Um, and I'll get to the volcano in a second. This is an Iolite. (laughs) Uh, It's very good, very portable. Uh, You can get this online, and uh, it takes a butane charge. You just charge it up, and it's a little igniter there. And the technology is similar to what they use in a hot glue gun, so it doesn't get too hot because vaporization needs to be just the right temperature, 250, 300, to cause the cannabinoids to vaporize without any products of combustion. Mm-hmm.
2: Do you know how? Is there a lot of the um, cannabinoids? How mm-hmm. did you say? Cannabinoids. An yeah. Yeah. Cannabinoids. Do they vaporize all
3: of them? Vaporize. Mm-hmm. They, so get, they, just,
4: oh, they, get, yeah. they probably get 50% off the leaves, and what's left over mm-hmm. you could use in cooking because mm-hmm. there's still some in there, uh, but the nice thing is it doesn't smell a lot, mm-hmm. and and this works really it good. It's
3: really good, actually. And, How do you yeah. smell? it? Would you say it was? It's an
4: Iolite, I-O-L-I-T-E, and this is made in Britain.
2: You can get it from Vape Fiend. And it, the, the, the reason we brought these in is because, well, this this is a very cheap method. This is the next. This is a vaporizer, and Ron can talk about that. That's the next. That's about seventy dollars, something like that. This is around two fifty. That's around four hundred. Four five. Four five. Four or five. Uh, four or five. have a five. digital one of those. Yeah. And, and
4: then well, I think yeah. It's just digital, but uh, the thing with the, with this is it's discrete. Uh, some people actually go, uh, you know, like. Breaker, breaker! Give (laughs) me your twenty, because nobody would really know what you're doing. Um, This has a little ceramic plate in it. You put your cannabis, ground up cannabis, in here, and you use a lighter to put hot air in the ceramic plate. That way, you're not actually burning the cannabis. So you have things like like that. Uh, The thing about the that we like about the um, Volcano is its high-tech German technology. You put ground-up cannabis in this little canister. You put it right on the top, and it's set to a certain temperature. You turn the air pump on, and it starts to go. And you can see—can you see the vapor? That's not smoke. That's not smoke. It's vapor. And you probably won't be able to even smell it. If you get to come right over here, you go mm, a little bit, but it doesn't smell up your whole house. Yeah. So you fill up the bag, uh, which is just a baking bag is all it is, like a turkey bag or something. You might. And you just take it off, turn this off, put this little thing snaps on there. And when you when you push on, you can wow. see it coming out. But the really, really.
2: <laughs> and
4: you don't have to be in a hurry. You can set it down. It'll last for it's, five
2: or ten it's minutes. No, no yeah. sensation really, but yeah. it definitely works.
1: Are you participating right now?
2: Yeah, he is. Yeah, He's I have my employee. card though. Yeah. Well,
1: I think you ought to share it
4: around. <laughs> well, actually, no I, sharing. am sharing. I'm sharing. I'm sharing. Everybody. I had, uh, <laughs> just, just a little anecdote on chocolate <laughs> And I know we've got to go, but I have actually seen these used uh, in communal situations where, because you can make the bag as, lo- as large as small as you want. <laughs> I've seen a six-foot bag with a, a helium balloon on the end of it, so that it, you know, you, you know, otherwise it'd just be, you know, like this. So it's floating up there. and You can just pass it <laughs> around uh, a large you, large bag, but, but a small can, bag. And
2: you, you could even take the, this off and, and change the mouthpiece if you really had a, a need to do that, you know. Yeah. Do you find that having it that way it helps you sleep just
1: as good as if you smoked it? Okay. I, it works
4: the same way. It's still it's same yeah. it's the, same. the same. Yeah, just the same.
2: I always feel like it's different.
4: Yeah. I, you know, I've heard people say, oh, that doesn't get any high, or is it like that. So, okay, and they'll try it a second time, and they'll go, whoa, so it's just...
3: I've also heard, depending on how hot it is, because there, I have a digital one, and mm-hmm. there's some research out there on how you should set the temperature for either the mm-hmm. sativa or the indica, there's different temperatures, mm-hmm. and also different temperatures to release different levels of the
2: cannabinoids. I haven't heard that. I have the, I have the numbers <laughs> written down somewhere. I mean,
3: I use them at home. Yeah. But it's like, you know, they say between 364 and uh, 374.
2: Interesting. Well, I you think. know, we really need more research on that kind of thing because uh, I, I haven't seen any of that, but that would be, that's fascinating. Well, the
4: UCSD study that you talked about, which was the $8 million that California put up to have UCSD study the medicinal effects, they were using the uh, NIDA-supplied cigarettes from Mississippi for many of their of their, um, of their studies, but they did take a volcano and they analyzed. They took and they would use smoke from from joints that were government-supplied and compared it with uh, the vapor from the volcano and found out. All the THC was there, all the other cannabinoid profile, the ones that are able to be volatilized at that temperature, like 350, uh, th- but there were no products of combustion in there. There was no carbon monoxide, there was no, you know, the various forms of carbon that would be uh, in the process of burning. You just don't find... And what you often hear is people say, oh, you can't smoke anything, it's, it's bad for you, it's going to cause lung cancer. Look at all the toxic agents in the smoke. Uh, but we already found that there's an anti-cancer effect to cannabis that might be contra... Uh, working against the possibilities that some of the nasty ingredients that are in smoke... Uh, that may be the explanation for that, but if you're concerned about that at all, go with a vaporizer. That's that's my point.
0: any yeah. Information about uh, chronic vaporization and uh, damage to the cilia and the lungs, because you're not getting the smoke, you're not getting the exacerbation of the, you know, the lung tissue of you know actually
4: moving the. Along, but,
2: you know, no, I think that study in New Zealand kind of would would put that to rest. Mm. You know, even patients that smoked marijuana had better vital capacity and lung volume no, all that vapor vaporized oh, like, rather than smoking. Oh.
4: No, I've, it's got everything that's in the smoke yeah. except all the nasty stuff. Yeah. Right, yeah, i I've seen some information about
2: that. Yeah. Uh, Interesting. I'd be hopefully. interested in saying that, yeah. Yeah.
4: yeah.
3: I can tell you, I cough a lot less using that than I
2: ever did when I smoked. Yeah. Uh, so that good, well, the, the, it the, 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 the research is saying that the coughing is actually helping
4: yeah, for the lungs. Oh, oh, it, it yeah, it does have an expectorant value to it. that yeah. uh, uh, either, uh, to a degree, You still can cough mm-hmm. test, Yeah. which yeah. I, I do on occasion, but just not so much.
2: Mm-hmm. So one last thing, okay. join the groups. And maybe if you if you can't afford to give any money, it doesn't matter, but just go look at them, like uh, Drug Policy Alliance, Medical Marijuana Pro- Project, LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, um, Normal, uh, Americans for Safe Access. And they're on the links that I'll send you. And if you just go to their website, and every week or so they'll have a new action alert. Just you know, just click it and send something off to your our 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 people in Congress, and join them if you can. If you can afford three dollars a month, you know, every month, support them with your money too, because these people are just pouring it on for us back in Washington, and that's how we've gotten where we've gotten. That's it. Yeah.
3: You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
0: So, do you now feel a little better prepared to debate the issues of cannabis prohibition? I'll, uh, I'll post those links to Claudia's with the program notes for this podcast, uh, which you know you can find through psychedelicsalon.org, and I strongly encourage you to visit some of the websites that she uh, lists there. Also, uh, there is one issue that Claudia had the courage to raise that uh, I'd like to comment on myself, and it's something that most of the cannabis advocacy groups uh, seem to ignore. Yet, uh, for me, it's one of the most important features of cannabis, and that is its ability to elevate one's mood to help fight off depression. Now, in the Christian culture we find ourselves in here in the States these days, it isn't proper to admit that mood improvement or feeling good is okay. Unless, of course, uh, it's done through the use of a prescription pharmaceutical like Prozac or Valium or Xanax or something like that. You know, I can uh, I can remember way back in my past life as a corporate suit that some of my business associates were adamantly against cannabis because uh, they thought that it made people feel better than what these jerks thought that we should be feeling. And the kicker is that uh, these same guys, uh, for the most part, were on some kind of a prescription tranquilizer of their own. And, uh, by the way, some of those are really powerful. In fact, uh, if you live somewhere where there isn't a regular supply of top-quality cannabis, uh, you may find, as I did, that Xanax is an excellent substitute. But uh, if you do, be very careful, because uh, unlike cannabis, it's uh, quite easy to develop an addiction for it. Anyway, here are these guys I was working with who were putting down on people they called potheads, uh, mainly because they thought they were feeling too good, and yet these same guys were as mentally disoriented from their prescription medicines as uh, any first-time toker would be. Ultimately, the only arguments I can see against the use of cannabis are all religious-based. You know, those sad sacks uh, are going to jobs they hate, uh, living in a society that's ever-changing all around them, and then they blindly follow the urgings of these nutty preachers who are doing everything they can to ensure that no one else is having a better time than they are. Okay, I'll get off my high horse now, but my guess is that I'm only saying things that you've been thinking about yourself. So uh, I'll get out of the way now, and you can take this program and pass it around to your friends, relatives, and neighbors if you have the courage. Play it in your drug education class if uh, you have a teacher who's courageous and will let you do it. Listen to it with your friends and uh, memorize some of these important facts about cannabis. And then you no longer have to bite your tongue when somebody tries to spread more lies about this wonderful plant. It's time to stand up and be counted, my friend. Don't let them push you around with bad information anymore. After all, uh, we're all in this together, you know. And uh, speaking of being in this together, you may also want to listen to the latest podcast from the It's uh, number 211, I believe, and uh, in it, the Dope Fiend and some of his audience exchange ideas about uh, some of the concepts and topics that were covered just now. And uh, so it's an excellent place to continue this conversation. Also, I'd be remiss if I didn't give a plug to my friend KMO and his Sea Realm podcast. His recent programs, uh, numbers 194 and 195, in which he uh, interviews Albert Bates, are not to be missed, in my opinion. There's a lot of important thinking coming out of the Dope Fiend podcast and the Sea Realm podcast, and uh, I highly recommend them all in the event that you uh, haven't already uh, listened to them yourselves. And uh, like this podcast, uh, their subscriptions are all free. Well, that's going to have to do it for now. And uh, so I'll close today's podcast again by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, uh, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find through psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, if you're interested in the philosophy behind the psychedelic salon, well, uh, you can hear all about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as an audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>